You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. I'm going to leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 418 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, by the end of the last episode, it was the afternoon of Wednesday, October 14th, 1863, and Confederate General A.P. Hill had hurriedly deployed Harry Heath's division near Bristow Station, Virginia, in order to launch a quick strike across Broad Run Creek and attack what Hill mistakenly believed was withdrawing elements of the Federal Third Corps. The Yankees pulling back from Broad Run were, in fact, the tail end of Sykes' Fifth Corps. However, that mistake of Hill's paled in comparison to his blunder in not adequately scouting the area. As we said last time, earlier on the 14th, the Confederate cavalry that had been screening the advance of Hill's corps had clashed with some Federal horsemen, which resulted in the rebel cavalry being drawn off in a series of running fights with those Yankees. And so, as A.P. Hill's infantry continued their march, there were no longer any rebel horsemen to scout ahead and to provide information on the enemy, such as the fact it was Federals from the 5th Corps that were there across Broad Run, not men from the Third Corps. Or to let Hill know that another Federal Corps, the second, was coming up to Bristow Station, squarely on his right flank. Because, as we said last time, the second Corps, commanded by Governor K. Warren, was bringing up the rear of the Army of the Potomac, and it was marching along the line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad toward Bristow Station. Because of the absence of the Confederate cavalry, and because he failed to take any measures to scout the area, A.P. Hill was completely unaware that Warren's Second Corps was coming up on his right rear, even as he was sending Heath's troops forward to cross Broad Run. Major General Governor K. Warren had every reason to be satisfied with himself in October 1863. Three months before, at Gettysburg, Warren had distinguished himself. Indeed, some said he had saved the Army of the Potomac from defeat on the second day of the battle. George Meade had dispatched Warren, the Army's chief engineer, 
to check on the far left end of the Union line, which was supposed to be anchored on the southern end of Cemetery Ridge at Little Round Top. However, when Warren arrived on Little Round Top, he found it was occupied by only a few men from the Signal Corps, who had set up a signal station on the heights. Due to Dan Sickles' bungling of the positioning of Third Corps, Warren found the key piece of high ground was completely undefended. Warren ordered some nearby Union guns to throw some shells across the way, into woods where the signalmen reported Confederate troops were positioned. By this trick, Warren confirmed the presence of a large body of rebel soldiers in the woods when the glint of bayonets betrayed them as they reacted to the incoming Union shells. The Confederate troops, in fact, belonged to John Bell Hood's division, which was about to launch a ferocious assault on the Federal left. Warren leaped into action, immediately sending out calls for help. As soldiers from Strong Vincent's 5th Corps Brigade arrived on the hill in the nick of time, Warren helped position the guns of Hazlitt's battery, which began throwing shot and shell at the Confederate troops swarming up and over Devil's Den and into the Plum Run Valley below. Warren, bleeding from a neck wound, raced down the hillside, seeking more help to secure Little Round Top. Near the base of the hill, he happened upon the 140th New York, commanded by Colonel Patrick O'Rourke. As luck would have it, O'Rourke was Warren's former subordinate, and when Warren saw his familiar face, he famously called out, Patty, give me a regiment. The 140th raced up Little Round Top, and although O'Rourke was killed, the New Yorkers arrived just in time to help throw back yet another Confederate assault and to stabilize Vincent's wavering line. After the battle, George Meade was not slow in rewarding his chief engineer for his gallant efforts to save Little Round Top. He appointed Warren to fill in for the wounded Winfield Scott Hancock as commander of 2nd Corps. The 33-year-old Warren was quite popular among the tough veterans he commanded, not only for his valor at Gettysburg, but because in subsequent actions he showed a coolness under fire and a spectacular contempt for danger. Those qualities went a long way toward balancing his faults as a corps commander, among them a fanatical attention to minute details that should have been delegated to his staff. He also had the habit of placing a higher value on his own opinions than those of his superior officers, a trait that would lead him to grief later in the war. At any rate, neither of those weaknesses would be in evidence at Bristow Station when Warren and the men under his command would teach A.P. Hill a painful lesson in the pitfalls of impetuosity and the hard-learned value of looking before you leap. In an army noted for having its share of odd birds and individualist, 37-year-old Ambrose Powell Hill still managed to stand out from the crowd. On September 17, 1862, after a grueling forced march from Harper's Ferry, Little Powell and his Light Division saved the day for the Army of Northern Virginia at Antietam, 
with a crashing, headlong assault that brought the Federal advance on the south side of the battlefield to an abrupt halt. For that act alone, he might have garnered far more acclaim among his peers than, in fact, he did. But there were problems with A.P. Hill, both on the surface and below it. Hill's quarrelsome nature was well known in the Army, and his explosive temper had caused him trouble with more than one of his superior officers. Under the command of James Longstreet during the Seven Days Battles, the feisty Hill strained his relationship with Longstreet so severely that a duel between the two appeared imminent. However, the new commander of the army, Robert E. Lee, acted quickly and headed off any such episode by reassigning Hill to the command of Stonewall Jackson. But Little Powell's tour of duty with Jackson was marred by discord as well. Stonewall placed the temperamental division commander under arrest during the march into Maryland in 1862 and later preferred formal charges. Jackson's death after the Battle of Chancellorsville and the consequent reorganization of the Army of Northern Virginia saved Hill from court-martial and possible disgrace. Instead, he was promoted to command of the newly formed Third Corps in May 1863. Longstreet, a Georgian, argued at the time that there were other candidates for the job who were either senior in rank or better qualified than Hill. But, Old Pete later pointed out, quote, they were not Virginians, end quote, an obvious reference to the state elitism that pervaded the Army of Northern Virginia. Robert E. Lee, on the other hand, said that A.P. Hill was, quote, upon the whole, the best soldier of his grade with me. That A.P. Hill was a first-class division commander is open to debate. He was personally popular with the troops, and his men hit hard whenever they fought, but he was also accused of recklessness, impulsiveness, and even disobeying orders at previous engagements at Mechanicsville and Gaines Mill. His division took heavy and unnecessary losses in those ill-considered assaults, but his conduct nevertheless was highly praised in the Richmond newspapers after the battles fixing his reputation as a fighter in the hearts and minds of Southerners. In any case, Robert E. Lee thought highly enough of Hill's performance to give him command of an entire corps. But A.P. Hill would prove that a decent division commander doesn't always make a good corps commander. After blundering forward into contact at Gettysburg, Little Powell was ill and, for all intents and purposes, was a non-factor once the battle started. This was the first of many instances when he would be physically incapable of performing his duties during a major engagement. Most historians believe Hill's problems could be traced to a youthful indiscretion while he was a cadet at West Point, which left him infected with a sexually transmitted disease, the effects of which would trouble him throughout the rest of his life. Little Powell would become sick again just before the Battle of the Wilderness in May 1864, leaving Robert E. Lee and his staff to run Hill's Corps for most of the battle. He was ill again at Spotsylvania, and his health deteriorated even more that winter at Petersburg. 
here at Bristow Station on October 14, 1863, for the men of Harry Heath's division, that day might have been a good one for A.P. Hill to have stayed in bed as well, since that would have saved them a lot of grief. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. As y'all will recall, we said last time that Warren's 2nd Corps was marching up the line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad so that it could rejoin the rest of the Army of the Potomac. Warren's nearest support, Sykes' 5th Corps, had just pulled back across Broad Run and started to move away because Sykes thought Warren was out of danger of being cut off. However, Sykes was mistaken in his assumption because, at that time, the Confederates were closer to the Broad Run crossing than the leading elements of Warren's II Corps. In any case, those Confederates were, of course, A.P. Hill's troops. And it was the sight of the withdrawing V Corps rear guard that had led Little Powell to hurriedly deploy Harry Heath's division so that it could be launched across Broad Run at the retreating Yankees. We said that Harry Heath deployed his division with Cook's brigade on the right, Kirkland's brigade to Cook's left, and Walker's brigade behind Kirkland. Joseph Davis's Mississippi brigade remained in reserve. Not long after A.P. Hill gave Harry Heath the order to advance his line of battle toward Broad Run, Brigadier General John Cook, advancing on the right, reported that unknown troops were moving up on his flank that is, over in the direction of the railroad tracks. Perhaps remembering what happened the first morning at Gettysburg when he had ignored Johnston Pettigrew's warnings and blundered into Buford's Federal Cavalry, Harry Heath here prudently halted his advance and sent word to Hill with the news. However, A.P. Hill, rather than have Heath investigate and discover the identity of the mystery troops, instead ordered Heath to continue his advance toward Broad Run. Hill seems to have, to have assumed the unknown force coming up on the Confederate right flank was part of the next formation from his corps that was marching behind Heath, that is, Richard Anderson's division. But A.P. Hill was mistaken in that assumption, because the mystery soldiers coming up on the Confederate right weren't friendly troops from Anderson's division. They were Federals from Warren's 2nd Corps. As 2nd Corps approached Bristow Station, 
Warren feared he would run into Confederates who were to the north of the railroad tracks. So he'd wisely formed his command into line of battle and marched it by the flank that way, straight up the line of the railroad. Webb's division was on the right, leading the way. Next came Hayes' division, and then Caldwell's division was on the left, bringing up the rear. That meant it was the leading elements of Webb's division that first encountered the Confederates when, at about a quarter past two that afternoon, Colonel Francis Heath's brigade, supported by Lieutenant T. Fred Brown's Rhode Island Battery, moved across Broad Run at the railway bridge. With the Confederates to the north not yet having crossed the creek, Brown's battery dropped trail on some good ground on the east side of Broad Run, while Francis Heath's infantry fell back to the west side of the creek, where they deployed, facing the rebels, in a ready-made defensive position, in the form of a railway cut. Minutes later, Francis Heath was joined on his left by another of the brigades from Webb's division, this one led by Colonel James Mallon. On the Confederate side, as the Federals deployed and opened fire on them, Cook and Kirkland naturally steered the advance of their brigades to the south, that is, toward this unexpected threat. However, A.P. Hill directed them to ignore the Yankees deployed along the railroad tracks and instead continue advancing east toward Broad Run. Cook chose to ignore Hill's instructions and led his and Kirkland's brigades to the right toward the obvious point of greatest danger, that is, toward Francis Heath's and James Mallon's Federals. The area the battle was fought over consisted of open fields studded with patches of thick pine trees and heavy undergrowth, with low, rolling ridges that frustrated lines of sight. And so, on the Confederate side, Cook's and Kirkland's brigades were actually hidden from the view of Walker's trailing brigade, and Henry Walker missed their turn to the right. As a result, Walker continued leading his brigade toward Broad Run. At this point, the leading elements of Richard Anderson's Confederate division appeared on the scene, coming up behind Harry Heath, so A.P. Hill immediately ordered Anderson to turn two brigades south toward the railroad tracks and send them into the fight. By now, it was about 2.30 p.m., and across the way, more troops were arriving to strengthen the federal position. These were Captain William Arnold's Rhode Island Battery and Colonel Joshua Owen's Brigade from Hayes' Division. They were soon joined by batteries F and G, 1st Pennsylvania Light Artillery, under Captain Bruce Ricketts. The Federal force facing the rebels now numbered about 3,000 infantry and 20 guns, including Brown's battery across the creek. Those numbers were soon bolstered by the arrival of Colonel Thomas Smith's brigade from Hayes' division. At the same time, Cook and Kirkland, not realizing the strength of the Federal position along the railroad tracks, continued to lead their brigades toward the Yankees. Private John Sloan of the 27th North Carolina, one of Cook's regiments, described the ground across which the Confederates advanced. Quote, the space between us and the railroad was a barren open field, descending with a gradual descent to the railroad embankment. 
Across and beyond the railroad about 300 yards, upon a considerable elevation, were extensive woods and thickets. Here the enemy had posted their artillery. In front of these woods, and on the face of the hill descending to the railroad embankment, was posted what we supposed was the enemy's skirmish line. Of course, it was more than a skirmish line. The onrushing Confederates were, in fact, heading straight for thousands of Federals deployed in an incredibly strong defensive position. It was, said a Yankee officer, quote, as fine a trap as could have been devised in a month's engineering. As the Federals' musket and artillery fire intensified, the Confederates stopped and for a few moments exchanged volleys with the Yankee infantry sheltered by the railroad embankment. Both Cook and Kirkland went down wounded. Despite men falling by the dozen, the arrival of a friendly artillery battery, which lent them close support, motivated the rebel infantry to charge forward into the teeth of the Yankee fire. As the gray and butternut line surged forward, the Federal soldiers loaded and fired, loaded and fired their muskets as fast as humanly possible. Their shots brought down dozens more of the Confederates, some just yards from the railroad embankment. We were mowed down like grain before a reaper, said one Tar Heel. In the 27th North Carolina alone, three color bearers went down in quick succession as, one after another, they grabbed the fallen flag. The Federals suffered losses, too. Alexander Webb's horse was shot from under him, and James Mallon was mortally wounded. In fact, a number of Kirkland's North Carolinians reached and pierced parts of Mallon's and Francis Heath's line. A few of the rebels even managed to cross over to the south side of the tracks, and from there fired into Heath's rear and engaged in some close-quarter, hand-to-hand fighting. But it was no breakthrough. Those Confederates couldn't hold their position, and when shells from Brown's battery across the creek started to fall in their midst, the rebels fell back north of the tracks. On the Union extreme left, Smith's brigade from Hayes' division had no sooner taken up its position about a quarter after three than it was hit by those two Confederate brigades from Richard Anderson's division that A.P. Hill had ordered into the attack. But at the height of this rebel assault, which took Anderson's men right up to the railroad, Union reinforcements arrived on the scene in the form of men and guns from Caldwell's division. Thus strengthened, the Federal line here was able to repulse the Confederate attack. By 4 p.m., the rest of Caldwell's division appeared and anchored the Federal left. Part of one brigade even crossed Broad Run to support Brown's battery, which was still holding its ground over there. At the same time, the Confederates of Cook's and Kirkland's badly battered brigades at last fell back halting to rally about 600 yards north of the railroad tracks. Meanwhile, A.P. Hill was scrambling to improvise a new line of battle, because by now elements of Dick Yule's corps were arriving on the scene, and his fresh units formed the new Confederate right, nestling against Kettle Run, a stream half a mile west of Bristow Station. The opposing artillery opened on each other, blasting away for a half an hour, 
but little damage was done in the exchange of shot and shell. A short while later, John B. Gordon's brigade from Jubal Early's division of Ewell's Corps crossed over Kettle Run on the Union left, but Gordon's unsupported advance wasn't strong enough to deliver a strong attack against Caldwell's Yankees, who anchored 2nd Corps' left flank. With daylight rapidly fading, more and more men from Ewell's Corps arrived on the scene until some 40,000 Confederates were arrayed within striking distance of the 11,000 Federals of Warren's 2nd Corps. To strike a potentially decisive blow, all the rebels needed was what they did not have, time. Nightfall ended the Battle of Bristow Station. About nine o'clock, under cover of darkness, Governor Warren successfully moved his men east of Broad Run. A Connecticut soldier said the troops slipped away from the battlefield, quote, in ghostly silence. The exhausted men of the 2nd Corps marched through the night, and the last of Warren's men crossed Bull Run at Blackburn's Ford about 4 a.m. on the morning of the 15th, going into bivouac after safely rejoining the rest of the army. The Battle of Bristow Station was the exception in a campaign that was made up mostly of maneuver. During that largest engagement of the campaign, losses in Warren's 2nd Corps amounted to 586 men killed, wounded, or missing, while the fighting cost the Army of Northern Virginia at least 1,300 men killed and wounded, with another 430 or so taken prisoner as well as five artillery pieces captured. Cook's brigade was hardest hit, losing around 700 men, including John Cook himself. Kirkland's losses were somewhere about 600 men, half of whom surrendered rather than run the gauntlet of fire back to their own lines across that open field. To a man, the North Carolinians of the two bloodied brigades were furious at their corps commander. One officer declared, quote, Hill is a fool and woeful blunderer. Another survivor said, quote, A worse managed affair than this did not take place during the war. A terribly disappointed Lee met with Hill about 6.30 p.m., just after the shooting died down. Jed Hotchkiss, Stonewall Jackson's map maker, who was now on Dick Yule's staff, was present at the meeting. Lee, he said, exhibited, quote, a great deal of bitter feelings in what he said to General Hill. According to Hotchkiss, Lee uncharacteristically reprimanded Hill, quote, in the most bitter terms. Hill rode the battlefield with Lee the next day, October 15th. It was a dreary, rainy morning, and Lee was still upset by Hill's bungling of the affair. According to one witness, Lee ended that conversation by telling Hill, quote, Well, General, bury these poor men and let us say no more about it.
After the Battle of Bristow Station, with George Meade having withdrawn the Army of the Potomac to a strong position near the old Bull Run battlefield, Robert E. Lee gave up his hope of outmaneuvering the Yankees and turning their flank. With his own lines of communication and supply broken, along with the destruction of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, Lee decided to withdraw back south of the Rappahannock. His disappointing autumn campaign had done little to change the strategic situation. No federal troops were hurried back to Virginia from Chattanooga. Lee could not even hold the territory through which he marched north of the Rappahannock. On the contrary, the Army of Northern Virginia had suffered losses in men and horses that it could ill afford, and Lee found the army significantly weakened for any future offensive operations. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Mead and Lee at Bristow Station by Jeffrey William Hunt. This book actually doesn't come out for another two months. Uh, its release date is listed as August 22, 2023. And although we haven't seen an advanced copy or anything, we nevertheless feel confident in recommending it, since this will be another volume in Hunt's series of post-Gettysburg books. And his previous releases... Mead and Lee After Gettysburg and Mead and Lee at Rappahannock Station have both been excellent. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we want to thank the newest member of the Strawfoot Brigade. So thanks to John A. for his support of the podcast. Thanks, John. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.